What is up, futurists? Michael here, and you're listening to Our Future, the business podcast for young people. My next guest is Adi Ignatius, who began his career as a foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal in Beijing and Moscow in the 80s and 90s before joining Time Magazine, being responsible for the Person of the Year and Time 100 franchises, before becoming the editor-in-chief of Harvard Business Review in 2009 and embarking on a mission to reinvent the publication to suit a wider audience and really become the super powerful source for idea exchange and critical thinking in the business world. I really enjoyed this one. Can't wait to dive in. What do you miss about being in the field, being you know a bureau chief and kind of like absorbing and observing the events of unfolding in foreign countries? So when people ask me um, for advice uh, on a journalistic career, my advice is always if you have it in your stomach and your gut to go overseas, um, think about it because you're going to be paying your dues somewhere. And if you are the type who would like to travel, who would like to plop down in a place like Prague or Hong Kong or, you know, Moscow, Beijing, you, uh, you can pay your dues. You can start in the craft and then have these amazing adventures. And that's, that's, that's really, you know, we all have moments in our lives. I hope where we say, gosh, I can't believe they're paying me to do this because we love our jobs. I, I don't know. Maybe most people don't feel that. I certainly felt that uh, at, a, at a period of my life where I was in these extraordinarily interesting countries, watching extraordinarily interesting events unfurl and being there uh, and, and having the privilege to try to make sense of it for a global audience or for a U.S. audience. It's just to me, there was nothing more exciting. So for me, you know, I, I host this podcast and I, I really like to be friends with everybody, you know, but, you know, as an investigative journalist, is it something you can go into if you want to be well liked by everybody and kind That's of be friendly question. to everybody? Yeah. That's a great question. So, um, <clears throat> so the answer, I, so the best journalists um, don't try to be friends with anybody and they really, and, and this is why I was never or could never be a great investigative journalist. I could write profiles, I could do features, I could do slices of life, but the the investigative stuff where you're just, you know, going after it, scorching the earth, making no friends, I, it's just that was not my skill. And and you you need I mean you put it just right. You you have to have this attitude. I don't care if this guy seems like a, a, a nice guy or not. I'm just I'm doing the story and I'm not I'm not trying to win friends here. I'm trying to tell the truth. And you know, it doesn't suit everybody, but but the people who can do it are a huge national or a huge asset to uh, to the rest of us. You went to Time Magazine and, and as I said, covered that focus on on business. What was it like joining Time, a publication that's so iconic, and even being one of the people that helped create the person of the year? I was involved in some of the decisions each year and wrote the person that your profile of Vladimir Putin, the Russian president of the year that we, we did that one. Um, I did have a big hand in developing the Time 100 franchise, which, you know, there are people who love it, there are people who think it's frivolous, whatever, but it was it was an interesting way to put a spotlight on a hundred interesting people across all aspects of society. So it was a, it was a, you know, it was at the very least a good, a good marketing effort for time and, and I think created some interesting content as well. You know, I, I miss what do I? I miss the morning meetings at time where we would sit around and talk about the world, and that might sound ridiculous to say it, but you know, the 
politics editor would talk about what's happening in Washington and the global editor would talk about, you know, the, the, the conflict in the Middle East and the arts person would talk about an amazing new play that's coming to Broadway and society person would talk about some trend. So, so you just, you felt you had the world at your fingertips and the decisions we were making, what we write about and what we don't write about, you know, we're, we're sort of profound in a way. I mean, you had, we had 4 million subscribers at that point. They, um, they looked like America, you know, they sort of broke down demographically the way America breaks down and they were relying on, on this publication to sort of tell them how, what is going on in the world, what, what matters. So that was, that was sort of exhilarating to have that kind of reach, that kind of potential impact, and just to be thinking broadly about all these, all these topics. It was, mm -hmm. you know, it was, it was, it was kind of great. Yeah, in 2007, you guys uh, had Vladimir Putin as the person of the year. In the early 60s, when I think Nikita Khrushchev was made person of the year in time uh, mm -hmm. as a result of, of the, the, the space stuff and Sputnik. What was yep. the what was the public response to 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 appointing you know the Russian premier to the 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 time person of the year? You know, after nine eleven, there were strong voices that, as distasteful as it might seem for Americans, Osama bin Laden was rightly the person of the year. And I think internally that was just it was just tough to swallow. You know, editors were in New York; it was raw. Commercially, I think there was a fear that you do that, you'd lose every advertiser, no matter how much you say, look, we're not honoring the person, we're just acknowledging that they affected the news. It seems like an honorific. So um, wow. anyway, so that year we picked Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, who had sort of stepped up to leave New York back after 9-11. And that, that was fine. It seemed credible. But, but uh, at another level, we were sort of ducking what might have been the proper response, which was to to name somebody who was America's enemy number one as person of the year. Okay, so you know, years later, when we were considering Putin, I, I think there was extra impetus to choose somebody who would be controversial to show that we can do that. You know, that we're not gonna we're not gonna kind of cave to a, a sort of general sensibility or a fear of, of advertiser response or something like that. So. Um, you know, and that was kind of a point where Putin had gone from, okay, he's leading Russia. He seems to be lucky because oil prices are high, but this is the point where it's like, oh no, this, this, he's, he's president for life. And he is trying piece by piece to restore aspects of the kind of Soviet era that he'd grown up in. So, um, so it, it, it felt absolutely right to do that, but that context also contributed to the decision. So you joined Harvard Business Review in 2009. What what kind of brought you to the, the to to HBR and, and made you want to pick up that job with the, the the different themes that you had not seen previously in your career? What's kept me at HBR and and the reason why HBR is by far the most interesting and satisfying job I've I've ever had is um, the kind of engagement and impact. So. You know, I was saying we had 4 million subscribers at time. You know, we have 400,000 in HBR. That's a good number, but that's one-tenth. But this is 400,000 people who are really engaged. I mean, they, they know our archive. They know what we've published better than I do. Um, so you have this, this, you know, I don't know, whatever you want to call this sort of cohort, lifelong learners or, or whatever, um, people who, who love to think, to think about how we all interact as humans to think about how um, 
institutions can work more effectively, how leaders can be better, how to advance your career. I mean, these are all, you know, they are serious topics, but they're also kind of normal topics. There's, there's sort of what all of us are thinking about in one way or the other almost every day. So, you know, once we um, took it upon ourselves to reinvent the publication so that it wasn't, as you say, so academic, so that it wasn't simply um, a collection of long form, you know, big heavy duty research-based pieces. We still do those and they're very, very, very important. But once we realized how to reach people through other platforms, short form, long form, you know, visual, audio, video, you know, just just the whole gamut to kind of connect with people where they are, then, you know, then then we were sort of meeting a consumer sensibility that wasn't it wouldn't be defined as academic or as 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 sort of academic wannabe, but was really reaching people out there in the real world who were thinking yeah. about all these issues. So it's been hugely satisfying. <clears throat> You're talking about reaching people out in the real world, and and business research has long been criticized as lacking relevance to industry. And Harvard Business Review is the uh, the source; it's the medium to exchange ideas between the business schools and you know the the practitioners and the the, the company managers. Um, what is it like to kind of give this academic research legs? Because it's so often siloed, um, what is it like to 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 actually apply it out into the real world in a way that people can actually absorb and understand, and 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 maybe even use one day in their back pocket? Yeah, so so academics, you know, c- continue to write for academic publications, and those, you know, those are serious papers that you know tend to move the needle in important, but maybe to lay people sort of minor nuance or small ways. I mean, those are hugely important in academia. We're trying to work with these same people and say, okay, that that's an important contribution to, um, to the world of academia. But, but what about the practical ap- application? You know, to what extent does this new research, this new thinking change the world? You know, have an application for the average person or the average executive or whoever who's, who's, who's thinking about these, these topics. So um, we have a great team of editors. We're not experts on these topics. The experts are the people who write for us, academics or executives or consultants or whatever. But you know, our team is really good at understanding how to translate these difficult ideas, complex ideas into a form that actually means something to, uh, to a, a kind of general audience. So. That's kind of what we do, and that uh, you know we're almost uh, we're almost a hundred years old, so it's a it's a good formula, you know, to to take this stuff and make it make it valuable, and you know you can almost make fun of HBR because we have you know five things, five takeaways, three tips, which you know not every article does that, thank God, but 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 while you can make fun of it, it it's it kind of underlines the the practical value that we try to get from all these ideas that are coming out of wherever, often academia. So I think I read that when you arrived at HBR, they weren't covering the Great Recession. And it was something that you said that it should be a reflection of the particular zeitgeist that that we're all living through. Now it's it, it's COVID. What has seemed to be a, a very compelling quality of, of businesses and leaders that are, are effectively dealing with this crisis well? Yeah, another good question. Um, 
first of all, I mean, with COVID now, we are, are we've all, we're functioning almost like a newsroom. We've kind of adopted that metabolism since, I don't know, since February or March, where we're doing several stories a day on, not health stories exactly, but on COVID-19 and the effect on business, working from home, topics like what you're talking about, how to, how to lead from a crisis. Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has also um, uh, led to a lot of coverage. And, you know, so we're just, we're, we're moving a lot faster than we ever have. And it's, it's exhausting, but it's exhilarating because this is just, this is a really interesting time in, in all of our history and people are, are starved for information and we're happy to you know, be part of the information flow. The cliche, and I know, I think McKinsey and um, BCG have both done studies that, that would seem to prove it, that the companies that do well are the ones that continue to innovate during a downturn. I mean, there's a temptation to just say, okay, I just want to survive this. You know, I just want to hoard my cash and put off all these projects I had to reinvent the future, to invent the future and just kind of protect my core and get through this. And then at some point we'll get back to what we were doing. I think the data shows pretty clearly that the companies that do well, and you know, it's, it's something like one in seven companies are able to grow in terms of revenue and market share, and maybe even on the bottom line during a sort of catastrophic moment like this or like 2008. Um, and the ones who do tend to be ones who kind of stick to their innovation plan. If they were, if they were on course to kind of disrupt themselves and, and you know, re basically retire their old way of doing things and bring in the new way of doing things, the ones who stick to that tend to do the best. What would, you, what would be your advice to young people who want to make waves in journalism, media, or who are just really ambitious and, and you know, want to, to affect impact at, you know, kind of, a level that you have in your career? So as I said earlier, I think if you have the fortitude to go overseas, pay your dues there, there still are opportunities, maybe not as many as before, but um, there are plenty of time out type publications or business publications um, that are in English. And, um, you know, related to that, if you can write and you can edit, don't sell yourself short. I mean, there's a tendency of those of us who are pretty good at that to think, well, everyone can do that. And it's not true. People, most people cannot do that. So if you can write, if you can edit, that, that's a really valuable skill. So know that. Um, the, you know, the, the, the people who tend to do well now um, often have multiple skills. Um, if you're willing to learn to code a little bit, um, to understand audience development, um, to um, <clears throat> understand data analytics, to learn how to produce podcast to produce video as an additional skill you know maybe it shouldn't be that way we should be allowed to specialize more but but the fact is if you sort of take on those additional skills you will create more opportunities for yourself and the other thing i would say is you know don't be afraid of having a specialization um you know if you love writing about the fine arts you know find opportunities there i mean you know there's a tendency to think well you know the new york times or washington post are big powerful outlets so i want to be a general journalist so sure there are people who do that, but you know, specialization is is how you, I don't know, you kind of learn you you learn a trade deeply, and then you are a sought after voice uh, in that particular area. So you know, don't don't be afraid to specialize. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that was Adi Ignatius, Editor-in-Chief of Harvard Business Review. I hope you guys are following the podcast on Instagram, at our future podcast, on Twitter, at our future pod. And I'm really excited to share some more episodes with you guys this week. Stay engaged, tell your friends about it, and remember to stay frosty and stay safe as well. Peace out, guys.